If you have your copy of God's Word, let's turn together to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, our text this evening, uh, verses 15 to 23, is we continue to work our way through this letter that Paul has written to a church that he's never met. And we talked about that last time. Um, it appears that this church in Colossae was, was established through the ministry of one of Paul's converts, Epaphras, whom he mentions in chapter 1, verse 7, one who's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and who's made known t- to us, he says, your love in the Spirit. And, and so Paul is moved to write this congregation uh, in order to tell them uh, about Jesus Christ uh, and also to warn them, as we're going to see in chapter 2, of, of various bypaths and ways off the straight and narrow uh, as, as different uh, sects and groups might come to say that Jesus is not supreme. He's not preeminent. He's not sufficient. It needs to be Jesus plus something else. Paul says, no, no. No, it's the supremacy of Christ over all things, the preeminence of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ. That's what he wants to tell them of. And the the central passage in this letter that speaks especially of Christ's supremacy, the fact that he's the preeminent one, is this one before us tonight, chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. And so before we, we read this portion of God's word, we need to ask God for his help so that we might see and hear and know Christ is preeminent in our hearts and lives. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we do come as your people, desiring to hear from you yet again in and through Holy Scripture. Here at the end of your day, Lord, please speak your word to us. Open our eyes of faith that we might see glorious riches in this portion of your gospel. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. He, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which is proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, Pastor Kent Hughes tells the story of the famous 1893 World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago. You might remember from your history books that that exposition was meant uh, to really display some of the, the wonder of rebuilt Chicago, which had been burned in a tragic fire in 1873. And so the Chicago City Fathers desired this exposition to show how far Chicago had come in 20 years. 
The exposition was also meant to to show uh, American goods to the world, but also to show the world's goods to Americans and perhaps foster further trade. Uh, The idea of bringing the world to Chicago was to try to unite peoples together. And that was part of the reason why the the organizers of the exposition, as part of the various events that they were holding, also decided to hold what was called the World Parliament of Religions. Uh, The various religions of the world had representatives there at the exposition. And there was some hope by the organizers that they might get together these various representatives of the world religions and come up with a a new world religion, one that would take the the strengths of the various religions uh, and merge them together so that men and women might live in brotherhood and peace around the world. Well, the great evangelist D.L. Moody wasn't interested in creating a new world religion. Rather, he saw the entire exposition and and even the world parliament of religions as a wonderful opportunity to preach the gospel. Uh, There were some of Moody's friends and supporters that wanted him to attack the exposition and to attack the parliament. This would be the way, they said, to provide a platform for the gospel, to show where they are wrong in order that he might show where Christ is right. But instead, Moody refused. He rejected their counsel, and he said this, I am going to make Jesus Christ so attractive that men will turn to him. You see, Moody knew that that you don't win men and women to Jesus Christ by attacking others. You win men and women to Jesus Christ by showing him to be supreme and preeminent and sufficient and beautiful and fair. And that's what happened. Moody preached night after night on the the grounds of the exposition, and thousands of people came to Christ. It was Moody's last great evangelistic campaign, one that that would stand in, in the history of evangelicalism in our country as a key landmark. But you know, our day's not that different from Moody's. There are voices today um, that, that, that see Christianity as, as merely another religion, a world religion among others, fighting for a seat at the table. Perhaps it's viewed by some as, as a pathway, one among many that would help people to live the good life. That's good for you, but it's not my pathway. Uh, there's very little recognition today that Jesus is actually not one option among others. Rather, Jesus is supreme. He's preeminent. He's sufficient for this life and the life to come. And and even here in the Bible Belt, we don't have a clear sense of who Jesus is. Not one option among others. Not not simply a a pathway to heaven. It was Kenny Chesney that's saying everybody wants to go to heaven. And if everybody wants to go to heaven, we give lip service to Jesus without truly believing and living the reality of of who he actually is. Not just that he lives within my heart, although that is true, but that he is actually supreme, preeminent over everything, over creation and over new creation, and above all, over each one of us, over ourselves. You see, As Paul is preaching in this letter, and he really has gone to preaching here in verse 15, as he goes to preaching to this congregation of folks he's never met, 
He wants to make sure they understand who Jesus Christ is. And the way to do it, Paul understood, was not to attack others, the various uh, synchronistic religions that, that, that existed in this hub city of Colossae. Rather, the way to persuade people concerning who Jesus is is to show him to be beautiful and excellent and sufficient and preeminent and supreme. How does Paul do this? How does Paul show Jesus to be supreme, to be preeminent, to be sufficient? He does it in two ways. First, he points to Jesus as supreme over creation, and then he points to Jesus as supreme over new creation. So notice what he does first. Paul shows Jesus to be beautiful and excellent, preeminent, supreme over creation. That the opening verse takes you directly back to the beginning. You see it? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. We hear this language in verse 15 of the image of God and of all creation. And Paul purposefully is taking us back to Genesis, to Genesis 1.26. Let us make man in our own image after our likeness. Paul's echoing creation and saying that, well, if you want to see the image of God, if you want to see one who perfectly images or, or perfectly serves as the likeness of who God is, look at Jesus. Jesus is, in fact, the perfect image of the invisible God. He is he's the representative of, of all creation. In fact, he uses this language that bothers us a little bit, doesn't it? The firstborn of all creation. What does that language mean, the firstborn of all creation? Well, I think Paul uses that language to stress two things. First, in stressing that Jesus is, is the firstborn of all creation, he's trying to get at the idea that Jesus is, in fact, the perfect man. In the same way that Adam and Eve were meant to, to image forth God, to, to show the other creatures this is what God looks like, only to fall through their disobedience in the garden. So Jesus comes as the second Adam, as the perfect man, to, to point us forward to this is what it looks like for God to walk among you. Because in fact, Jesus is the image of, the, of God, the, the, the firstborn of all creation. But not only is Paul stressing that Jesus is the perfect man, he's, he's also stressing here in this language of the firstborn of all creation that Jesus is the promised Messiah. It's likely he has Psalm 89 in his mind. If you were to go home tonight and before you went to bed and you were to read through Psalm 89, what you would find is that psalm is a messianic psalm, a psalm that speaks of a future King David who's going to come to rule over his people. And in the midst of that psalm, you would read, he shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation, and I will make of him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So the psalmist there uses this language of the firstborn and connects it to one who is coming, who's going to be the perfect king, one in the line of David, who would know God as his father and be claimed by God as his son. And so 
when, when Paul here says that Jesus is in fact the one who images forth God as the firstborn of all creation, he's saying, this one is the perfect man. This one is the promised Messiah. His name is Jesus, and he's supreme over all things, and especially over all things created. You probably noticed as we read these verses together, but one of the striking things that Paul does is to stress that Jesus created all things or everything. That language comes up over and over again. He, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, verse 16, for by him all things were created. Uh, again, verse 17, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Over and again, Paul uses this language of all things, so you have to ask the question, what things are included in all things? Well, Paul tells us what's included in all things. Uh, all things were created in heaven, verse 16, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him. In other words, everything you can see and all those beings that you cannot see, principalities and powers, spiritual forces, spiritual rulers, they are created. Our eyes can't see them. They do exist. They too were created by Jesus himself. All things, even the thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities with which we wrestle, all things created are created by Jesus that's why he's supreme over them. The creator is supreme over all of his creation. But Jesus is not only supreme over creation because he created it, he's also supreme over creation because he sustains it. That's what Paul goes on to say in verse 17. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. Those of us who grew up on the old King James Version, you, you remember this verse, by him all things consist. And so again, I ask, what does that mean? In him, all things hold together. All things consist. Well, on the surface, Paul's saying that in Jesus, everything coheres. This world doesn't fly apart, whether physically or culturally or, or politically or in any other way. Because in Jesus, all things hold together. We sometimes talk about our, our social fabric fraying, and, and we're fearful that it's going to tear apart or we worry that, that we might be plunged into another war that might destroy this world. But friends, what Paul is teaching us here is as long as Jesus is holding this together, all things consist. All things are held together. But it's important for us to see that Paul's not saying this. He's not using this language, in him all things hold together, in him all things consist, as though Jesus is somehow a life force, or as though Jesus is somehow a spiritual idea Right? This isn't Star Wars, the force be with you. Some kind of impersonal force bearing down upon this world to hold it together. And there's good light and bad light and all the rest. No. No, the, the being who's holding this world together is personal. You know his name. You pray to him. If you, if you have any worries or doubts or fears that our world might fly apart, take heart. The one who holds this world in his hands holds this world in nail-scarred hands. And you know his name. Jesus Christ is the one who's supreme over creation. 
Is it any wonder we sing, Ferris, Lord Jesus, Lord over creation? It's because he's the creator. He's supreme over creation. But that's ultimately not where Paul wants to go. Paul certainly wants us to understand that, that Jesus is beautiful and excellent and sufficient because he is supreme over creation. But what he wants us to see is that creation is in order to redemption. Creation is in order to new creation. He wants us to believe and know and see Jesus is beautiful and sufficient as the one who is supreme over new creation. Look at what he does in verse 18. He, he comes back to this language of the beginning, right? He says in verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Just as in verse 15, he used language of Genesis. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He comes back to Genesis language, but it's not taking us to Genesis. It's actually taking us to the cross and the resurrection, namely that, that a new creation has entered into the world. As we heard in, this morning in our assurance of pardon, if anyone's in Christ, new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. Well, well, where do you see this, this new creation most clearly? Well, Paul says in the church. He's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So, so when God's reign is being seen in his world, where do you find it? Where, where do you see the kingdom of God breaking into our world today? Well, the place you see it most clearly or at least you should, is in our church. And in churches like ours, where word, sacrament, and prayer are observed. When we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, you should be able to look at the church and say, oh, that's what it looks like when Jesus is ruling over his world. That's what it looks like when Jesus demonstrates his preeminence over new creation. Because you see how the church functions in relationship to its head, to Jesus. Jesus demonstrates his supremacy over the new creation, especially in the church, in three ways. And the first is rule. Paul says he's the head of the body, the church. That, that language of head has the idea here of ruler. Jesus is the ruler over his body in the same way that, that we talk about a head of state or the head of a corporation. So it is here. Jesus is head over his church. And so Jesus demonstrates his supremacy over his new creation people by ruling over us as his head. In other words, in Jesus' church, he alone is our king. He alone is our king. Now, what does that mean? That means I'm not the king. Thank goodness, right? Your other pastors, they're not the king. Your elders, your deacons, they're not the king. You're not the king. Jesus alone is the king. Many of you have heard me tell this story, but it is one of my favorites. Uh, as you know, one of my dear friends is George Robertson. He has twin daughters who are the same age as my son, Sam. Uh, and when the twin girls were little uh, at our church, Covenant Presbyterian Church in St. Louis, the Vacation Bible School that year was talking about different aspects of the offices of Jesus. 
And in this particular four and five-year-old class, they were doing a craft with those Burger King crowns. And they were decorating the crowns with different jewels and putting bling on them and making them bedazzled. And then after they got their Burger King crowns all decorated, the teacher said, okay, kids, put your crowns on your head. Oh, that's so great. Um, Now, who wears a crown? And the class says, a king. And the teacher, feeling really good about herself, says, that's right. Kings wear crowns. So who's the king of the church? And one of the twins shot up her hand and said, my daddy's king of the church. (laughs) No, we need to go back, right? No, Jesus is king of the church. He's the head of the body, the head of his church. And so he demonstrates his supremacy over his new creation people through his rule. But he also demonstrates his supremacy over his new creation people by virtue of his resurrection. You see, he's the the firstborn from the dead. He was the firstfruits or the firstborn, the, the, the one who comes that guarantees that everything will happen after him. Jesus is the one who has been raised from the dead. He's been resurrected, and that work will continue in our midst. And and Jesus' resurrection is actually a beginning, if you will, a new beginning. Part of the reason why I think Paul uses that language of in the beginning here in verse uh, verse 18, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He's the firstborn from the dead, the resurrected one, because in the resurrection there is a new beginning, a new creation, a new world order. Just as Jesus was before the the beginning of time, just as he was before the creation and God said, let there be light and the word brought light to bear into the world. So with the resurrection, Jesus was raised from the dead and there's a new beginning, a new creation. Of course, that's because he's supreme over death itself. As the one who's been raised from the dead, Jesus demonstrates that he rules over death. And Jesus' resurrection, of course, is a guarantee of our own. Because as he lives, so shall we. Because he is the resurrection of life, and we trust in him, we experience resurrection in life now, and we will experience it in the last day. Because he's the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep, we can believe that we too will be raised from the dead. In the four weeks in the run-up to Easter this year, we're going to be looking verse by verse through 1 Corinthians 15, Because one of the things we we have to cling to as believers in Jesus Christ is not simply, though glorious as it is, that when we die, we will go to the presence of the Lord in heaven. No, our our great confidence and our great hope and, and the gospel that Paul preached and the apostles preached to us was that there's life after life after death. There's resurrection for us, just as Christ was raised bodily from the dead. So we too shall be raised bodily from the dead. We will be given new bodies in a new world, and heaven shall come to earth, and all shall be set to rights again. That is our confidence and hope. Why should we believe that? Because Jesus is supreme over the new creation. Because he's been raised from the dead. Because he is, in fact, the new beginning Because we worship on the Lord's Day, the eighth day of the week. That's part of the reason why worship was moved from Saturday or Sabbath day to the first day of the week. It's because it it represents the eighth day, the first day of the new creation when Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus is the one who's supreme. Supreme, yes, over creation, but especially over new creation. 
And he demonstrates that through his rule, through his resurrection, but finally through reconciliation, the reconciliation that he has effected uh, in the cross. You see it in verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And so Jesus demonstrates his supremacy over new creation by, by having this grand purpose. He's going to reconcile everything. Things in heaven, things on earth. It's just what Paul says in Ephesians, that, that God's ultimate purpose and plan for his world is to unite all things in Christ. How does that happen? Well, it happens through the cross. That's what Paul says here. In the cross, God is, in Jesus Christ, has made peace through Jesus' blood. Well, how do we know that at the last day, Jesus is going to reconcile all things in himself? Well, the clearest evidence that, that that's what God's purpose and plan is, is you. You're, you're the proof that this is what God is ultimately going to do in his world. Because God reconciled you to himself through the blood of the cross. That's what Paul says in verse 21. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You're the great proof that Jesus is in fact supreme over his new creation. Because evil though you were, alienated from God, doing evil deeds, running as fast as you can away from him, he reached out and grabbed you and brought you to himself and reconciled you, came to at one moment with you, atonement with you. How? Through your good deeds? Through your law-keeping? Through your climbing of the ladder? No. Through, through what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross, shedding his blood for you. That's how God was reconciled to you. And just as God in Jesus Christ was reconciled to you through the blood of the cross, what Paul tells us is there's coming a day in the last day when all things shall be brought together and united in Jesus Christ and reconciled to him so that Jesus Christ might be all in all. Jesus Christ might be preeminent, supreme, sufficient, beautiful. I wonder tonight, do you see Jesus this way? I mean, do you see Jesus as supreme and preeminent and sufficient, but above all, do you see him as beautiful? As the one who is both creator and reconciler, creator and redeemer, supreme over creation, supreme over new creation? I mean, does this sound just like a bunch of intellectual stuff, or does it actually get down to your heart? Because ultimately... Our view of who Jesus is, not just while we're in church, but Tuesday afternoon at 3 o'clock, or, or Thursday morning at 9 a.m. when we go into that conference call, or, or Saturday afternoon when we're making our choices about our leisure, all these different choices we make in the, the rest of our lives will ultimately be driven by the fact, do I see Jesus as actually preeminent and supreme and and sufficient and beautiful, not just for the world in a general way, but over me, or not. If I don't see him as supreme and preeminent and beautiful and sufficient, then I'll go on my merry way and I'll do what I want. 
And I'll begin to wonder, well, is, does God have anything really to do with me? But if I see Jesus as supreme and excellent and beautiful and preeminent, then suddenly my moments and my hours and my days become invested with meaning because Jesus is at work. He's at work in my life. He's at work in my world. So that the choices that I make and the things that happen aren't by accident, but they are purposed by the one who rules over all things for his church. I hope you sit tonight, walk away from this place saying, I don't fully understand, but I think I see a little bit better that Jesus is in fact fair and beautiful and preeminent and sufficient and supreme. I hope you can go from this place saying, hallelujah, what a savior. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, that is our heart's desire. Moment by moment, day by day, here in this place, we long for our folks here to love you more today than they did yesterday and more tomorrow than they did today. And so, Lord, we do pray that your spirit would take your word and that you would help us to see how beautiful you are, how excellent, how glorious, how sufficient, how preeminent, how supreme over all things you actually are. Jesus, may we delight in you and rejoice in you and rest in you this night. Grant us such grace, Lord, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.